All right, we are continuing our study of 1 Corinthians here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And as always, it's important to keep the context in mind. And so here in chapter 11, we are beginning a new section where Paul is giving instruction specifically on various issues related to order and propriety in the worship gathering. That is, when all the Christians come together and have their weekly gathering, uh, what's the uh, proper way to go about that? And there are some problems and some issues that the Corinthians are struggling with. And so here, in this section, 11 through 14, Paul is giving instructions on what's proper Christian order for those gatherings in view of how you Corinthians are experiencing it. And in the first bit of chapter 11, the last section that we looked at, the issue was men and women honoring God and each other with uh, regards to the head covering conventions of the day and doing that particularly while praying and prophesying in the gathering. And so Paul gave instructions both to men and to women on how they should do that properly. He actually says, by and large, the church has got that one down. He can praise them for it. They're doing well. Now here in the second half of chapter 11, picking up in verse 17, Paul takes up a second issue related to this topic of order and propriety in the worship gathering. And this particular topic is one that he actually calls them out for. Um, He can't praise them for this, he says. And that issue is this. It's the way they are conducting themselves during their, their communal meal and the Lord's Supper as part of their gathering. When they would gather together, it wouldn't just be like in maybe our day where we would gather together, we would sing some songs, we would have a sermon, we would take communion, and we would be done with the service. They gathered together, and as part of that, they took a whole meal. And then they would have teaching, and they would have sharing by various members of the church. And as part of all of that, they would also take the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul says in this section that their conduct during that meal and the Lord's Supper was was shameful and creating divisions in the church. It was, in other words, a serious breach of kingdom values And really one of the major themes and points of the Lord's Supper in total. And so he calls them out for that in this section and gives them instructions on how they should appropriately be handling this meal and the Lord's Supper as part of that. Now, it's important to realize that dinner parties were a regular part of life in a big city like Corinth, particularly hosted by... Uh, the more well-to-do. There were clubs and associations that would be for other people or around various trades. They would have dinner parties as well. Often those dinner parties included religious observations or some sort of religious celebrations. And so what the church is doing is very much in sync with what's expected in their culture, having dinner parties with teachings and lessons and sharing and religious observations and all that. That part is normal in their culture. But often those parties revolved around people of like social status, people who were all wealthy, people who were all from the same trade or whatever it was. Paul wants the fellowship meal of the church to stand out as different from those standard dinner parties in Corinth. 
They can have those kind of dinner parties anytime they want in their own home, particularly if they have the means to do it. But when the whole church is gathered and you've got people from across the social spectrum, then your gathering needs to be much more mutual and equal than the stratified dinner parties of the surrounding culture. And that seems to be at the heart of what's going on here with the Corinthians and Paul's instructions to them. So let's pick up in chapter 11, verse 17, where Paul says, Now, in giving this next instruction, I do not praise you. With the first instruction concerning order and propriety in the worship gathering, the head covering section, Paul says he did praise them. He commended them. That indicates that most of them were actually following his instructions and the church was doing pretty well with that one. But here in this paragraph, he says, no, I can't praise you. I can't commend you. They're at fault and there's a need to change how they're acting. He says in this next instruction, I cannot praise you because... When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. That is, when you gather together as a church family, as a church body, it's actually doing more harm than good. It's for the worst. What's the exact problem? We'll look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Notice, this is something he's heard. This isn't something they wrote about, probably because their behavior is so shameful, and they probably had a sense of that. But he heard about it, maybe from Chloe's people that he mentioned earlier in the letter, or somewhere else. He's heard that the church is divided. He's addressed certain kinds of divisions earlier on in the letter. Now he's going to address specific divisions as they play out in the dinner gathering and the Lord's Supper. And he says, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. In other words, I can hardly believe it. That's how that phrase actually works in the Greek. It's similar to that English phrase, man, I hear this and I can hardly believe it. It communicates surprise and a certain level of displeasure. And then he says in verse 19, for there also have to be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And there's been some questions about how that verse, verse 19, connects with what he just said in verse 18. Um, verse 18 is, I hear divisions are among you. Verse 19, this interesting little statement about these factions uh, showing who's approved. And many just take that as kind of a straightforward and read it as Paul saying, well, it's actually necessary for these dissensions to be present because it makes clear who the real Christians are. Like, you know, your divisions actually point out who really is following Jesus and who's not. But that just makes little sense to me. It doesn't really fit with the context where Paul is, right, challenging them on their divisions and dissension in the church. And it just doesn't sound like something Paul would actually say from what we read of Paul in this letter and his other letters. So uh, I think that there's a different way to read it. It's actually a way that some commentators support as well. And that is that Paul is actually kind of chiding them when he says this in verse 19, that it's, it's maybe even being a little sarcastic. Um, what Paul is getting at then in verse 19, if that's the proper way to read it, is basically he's chiding them for their division, saying, you know, oh, it's necessary for you guys to have these factions because it actually points out who the real approved ones are. In other words, by virtue of these divisions that they have created, the ones who, quote unquote, really matter, the approved ones, they're made clear and made evident. Like, 
you have basically created a two-tier approach to the church. And you have the haves who really matter and who have wealth and they've got all the goods. And then you got all the other people who just aren't quite as good. And so I think verse 19 is really chiding them maybe with a little sarcasm, for the divisions they've created and how by doing so, they've, they've implicitly communicated, maybe intentionally communicated, that these people are the ones that really matter. Now, maybe it's the more straightforward way, and Paul is just saying this actually shows who's really following Jesus or not. It's not 100% clear, but either way, the problem in the church at Corinth is clear, and that is there are divisions in the church surrounding the Lord's Supper. So, Paul goes on and he says this in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, right? Like that, that should really be the heart of it. That should be the focus of this, this meal as part of your gathering is actually to take the Lord's Supper. And for you guys, that's not really the main thing. He says in verse 21, for when you eat, each one takes his own supper first. One goes hungry. Another person has so much he gets drunk, right? Like, they would eat this whole meal as part of their gathering, and those who were more well-to-do, the haves, if you will, those who were more well-to-do, they were feasting, probably in a separate room of the house, because people spread out as they eat, and, you know, their houses weren't massive. So the haves were in one spot eating, and they were feasting, and then the rest barely had any. And in this way, they're creating serious social stratification and divisions in the church around the time they're, they're taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul is shocked and aghast by this. So look at verse 22. He says, what? Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? And this is primarily addressing the haves, the, those who are feasting while the rest are going hungry. They had enough that they could host their own dinner parties. They were well-to-do enough, had large enough houses and had enough servants. They could host those dinner parties. And he's like, if you want to have a big social gathering with all your wealthy friends, do that in your own home. But don't do that as part of the gathering of believers. And so he actually says, or do you despise the church of God? Remember the word church, though it's a particular religious word in our world now, was originally just the word for assembly, gathering of people. Do you despise the assembly of God, the church of God's people, the, the gathering of them, and shame those who have nothing? That in separating by those who have a lot and those who have a little, you're bringing shame on those who have very little. And you're making them feel inferior. You're pointing out that they're less than, right? And those who have, they're now the approved ones among you, as I have read verse 19. What am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I do not praise you. For Paul, this sort of activity is a terrible violation of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's a terrible violation of God's kingdom values embodied in that supper. And so Paul's like, what should, I, what should I say to you on this? Shall I praise you? Not at all. In this, I will not praise you. And that sort of language, I do not praise you, that, that was common and a well-known part of this type of conversation. The opposite in this context of praise is blame. So to not praise them means to blame them. That is to find fault with them. In other words, Paul is calling them out for this behavior. And then what Paul does and what follows is 
in view of seeing how this is such a violation of the values of the kingdom and really the point of the Lord's Supper, what Paul does is he recalls the tradition about the Lord's Supper that he passed on to them when he started the church there and where the Lord's Supper came from. And so verse 23, very familiar words. If uh, you have heard these words, I'm sure, at some time in a church service when uh, someone was setting up the communion or the Lord's Supper, uh, for you in church. These words often are read and they're thus very familiar. Sometimes though we miss the context because of that familiarity. But it's in this context where they're, they're creating distinctions and divisions in the church um, around the Lord's Supper that these words show up. And so verse 23 says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, I received this tradition from the teaching of the Lord himself, right? Read the Gospels. There it is. He received it from the teaching of the apostles who had passed it on to him, that the teaching of the Lord. When he went and started the church in Corinth, he passed on this tradition from them. And so this comes directly from Jesus through his apostles to the churches throughout the empire. And so I received from the Lord, which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, the night that Judas betrayed him and handed him over to the leadership, on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. Now, when you read the gospel stories, this is in the context of a Passover meal. So Jesus is with his followers, probably the 12 and maybe their spouses, maybe a few others, in an upper room in Jerusalem when this happens. And it's Passover celebration. Passover celebration was a celebration of liberation from Egypt uh, through the Exodus. And so it was sort of a freedom festival and a liberation festival that uh, was central to Jewish identity. And in that context, Jesus takes this meal that celebrated how God had redeemed them out of Egypt, and now he refocuses it on him. And so in the context of that meal, he took some bread, and bread was a regular part of that meal, and this is what he did. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks for that bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. And so he breaks this bread and then he begins to, after he gives thanks, he passes it out to his disciples there at that feast, um, urging them to take this bread in remembrance of him. Now in that moment, he's right there with them, but he he's about to die and he knows where the story is going and he gives them this, this uh, really ceremonial meal as a way to commemorate him as a tangible experiential way to remember him. So this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So as part of the Passover meal, there were various cups of wine that were drunk as a special part of the meal, four different points of the meal. So he takes this uh, uh, later cup in the meal and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so he takes the bread, he takes the cup, and he now centers this, what, what was a Jewish Passover feast celebrating the redemption out of Egypt. Now it's a new Passover feast. It's a new celebration focused on Jesus. And notice it's focused on his body and his blood. That is on his death. Um, and so 
the focus of the Lord's Supper that is emphasized here in 1 Corinthians 11 is on remembering Jesus. Not having a great dinner party, but remembering Jesus, specifically remembering Jesus, his betrayal, and his self-giving death. That's what takes center stage here in the words Paul passes on in 1 Corinthians 11. In other words, this meal is supposed to be an expression of self-giving love, laying down your life for others, rather than self-serving, rather than feasting over here in this room while your brothers and sisters are over here going hungry, right? Like you're causing divisions and you're serving yourself. And here is a meal that's all about laying down your life for others. And that's why for Paul, it's such a shameful thing what they're doing. He continues on in verse 26, talking about the Lord's Supper and says this, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, here's what you do. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you're eating a meal and you're taking the Lord's Supper as part of that. And the point of it is supposed to be a proclamation of Jesus' death, his death for all people, his death self-giving, self-sacrificial death. That's what it's supposed to proclaim. That's what it's supposed to display. That's what it's supposed to embody. Not a, a great dinner party and not serving yourself. It's supposed to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, until he comes again. So having called out the problem and having highlighted what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about, Paul now applies all of this to the Corinthians and to their situation and to what they're doing. So in verse 27, he says, therefore, here's the conclusion. Here's the point. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. To, to eat this uh, communion meal in an unworthy way brings guilt on you guilt of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And in its original context, what does eating in an unworthy way primarily refer to? Well, in context, it refers to eating it in a self-serving way that doesn't focus on Jesus and his self-giving death. Eating it in a way that actually divides up the church along social stratification lines rather than um, bringing everyone together into one new family in Jesus. That's what it means to eat it in an unworthy way. By, by the way they were dividing up the church, they were being unworthy of the self-giving love and self-sacrificial death of Jesus. So Paul says in verse 28, but a person, notice the individual emphasis on this, each person, this is an individual responsibility, each person must examine himself and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this is an individual responsibility to examine himself. And that word that's translated examine is actually the very same word, or it's the verb form at least of the same word, that was translated approved in verse 19. For there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident to all. And I said, I think that's Paul chiding them with a little bit of sarcasm. Well, this word examined down here in verse 28 is the verb form of that same word. I actually think that lends some credibility to that chiding reading there in verse 19. The idea here is, is that rather than making clear who the so-called approved brothers and sisters are, um, what needs to happen is each person must test and approve himself. Like, 
As he eats the Lord's Supper, he humbles himself before Jesus and the cross and his death and his standards and his kingdom. And he's going to examine himself, test and approve himself with regard to how he takes the Lord's Supper and how you treat the body of Christ. Are you eating in a way that divides up the body? Or are you eating in a way that genuinely honors what the Lord's values are with regard to mankind as embodied in his self-sacrificial, self-giving love shown right there in this meal? And Paul actually emphasizes how important this is in verse 29 when he says, For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, on himself, if he does not properly recognize the body. And that word properly recognize is from the root word that means to judge. Uh, The word judgment is from the same root word. And here, properly recognize means something like to distinguish, to investigate and discern, even evaluate. Paul will use this word uh, again here in just a couple sentences. He's going to use it in several other places in this whole section of chapters 11 through 14. This is what he wants them to do. He wants them to evaluate, to distinguish. What's the proper way to do things? What's the right order to do things in, in the church? And eating by dividing the church along the lines of the haves and the haves not, that's not the proper way to do it. And so the person who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper actually eats and drinks judgment on himself if he's not properly evaluating and discerning the body. And probably here body means body of Christ. Could be the body of Jesus in the bread. But throughout this whole section, he's referred to the body and the blood, the the body and the drink, right? When he's talking about the the elements of the the, uh, communion meal. So probably what he means by recognize the body is the church, the body of Christ. And he's going to use that imagery in the very next paragraph to describe the church and how important the body is. And so that's probably what he means here is that properly recognize the body, that we're one body united in Christ by this very death of his that we're celebrating in this meal. And so Paul even specifies that this behavior, this uh, divisive behavior and the judgment that uh, comes from eating the, the body and blood of Jesus in an unworthy way, Paul specifies that that's one of the reasons for some of the physical ailments and even even some death among them as a church. Look what Paul says. This is very interesting. In verse 30, he says, for this reason, on account of this fact that you're eating judgment on yourself by the way you're eating the Lord's Supper, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. In other words, a number have died. And they that Paul says, some of the, the physical ailments you're experiencing Some of the ways people have died in the church is a form of judgment on you for your divisive behavior around the Lord's Supper. Then he says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, that's the same word that was translated recognize in verse 29. It's diakrino in the Greek. It means to evaluate ourselves. If we examined and evaluated and discerned ourselves individually and corporately as the body rightly, we wouldn't be judged. And so Paul is saying that the the physical ailments and even some people dying, that's coming on you as a form of judgment from the Lord because of the divisiveness in your church. And he says in verse 32, but when we are judged, here's the point, here's the goal of this 
being judged. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So such judgment, even sickness and death, Paul says, is disciplined by the Lord, not condemnation. He's using it to teach us and to correct us and to train us so that we will obey him and that we as his people, his family, will embody his values in our life together. So having said all of that then, Paul wraps up beginning in verse 33 with very uh, very specific instructions for them when they come together and they're going to have their meal and they're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is his very specific instructions. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, have them eat at home so that you don't come together for judgment. And that idea of wait for one another can mean wait, and it can also mean welcome or receive. The idea is to to do it all together. Um, Wait till everybody is together and make sure you eat this whole meal together. And what that means, according to verse 34, is if the time when you're doing this is at a time where, man, you you get hungry before you're going to come together for this this sacred meal and the Lord's Supper. Well, if you get hungry before you come, well, then guess what? Eat at home before you come. Have a snack. <laughs> Have a, a small meal before you come together so that you're not in a hurry and you just want to pig out and feast and ignore those who hardly have anything else. We're going to do this all together. So, The embodying of the Lord's Supper is to embody our oneness as the family of God. And very specifically, what that means is do it all together. Wait for each other, set a time, wait till everyone is there, um, and then make sure you all eat together and you take this together. Then he says, as to the remaining matters, I'll give instructions when I come. In other words, Paul says, I have more to say about that, but I'll do that in person when I can come and visit you. Now, before we wrap this up, let's just offer a few uh, reflections on what this text teaches us today. The first is that the Lord's Supper has both a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. That is, um, it has a dimension about our relationship with Jesus and with God. There's that vertical dimension between us and God. But there's also a horizontal dimension uh, between us and our fellow believers. And both are crucial. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not about just me and Jesus. It's not just my own personal communion with Jesus. It's There's an us element to it, an our element. It's us and Jesus together. And in Jesus' family, what that means is there's, there's unity, there's oneness. We don't have the social stratification. And that's really the second reflection, is that the Lord's Supper intends to undermine the social stratification of society. In Corinth and in the ancient world, and still in a lot of places in the world, mealtimes were very stratified. You, you, you not only did like eat with like, like certain social classes ate together, but even at those meals, you would have specific arrangements often around the table so that those of higher status were closer to the host and those that were of lower status were further away. Very stratified. Um, and The Lord's Supper intends to unite everyone together in one new family so that everyone is together. And that social stratification is still true in large parts of the world. In fact, I remember a number of years ago, I was teaching through the book of Galatians, and I had a student from uh, an African country in my class, and he was a European 
uh, of European descent living in an African country. And we are going through the book of Galatians. And all of a sudden, it kind of hit him, the social implications of what was being taught in Galatians. And here's what he blurted out in the middle of class. That would mean that, would mean that white Christians would have to eat with their servants. And he was like, that's radical. That would be really challenging even to the Christians in my country. And yes, it would. And that's the point. Um, The Lord's Supper intends to undermine that sort of social stratification where we eat with all with one another to uh, symbolize our oneness as the new family of Jesus. And so the Lord's Supper intends to embody the reconciliation that Christ worked, not just our reconciliation with God, but also our reconciliation with each other, people uh, like us and people different than us, people from the same social status as us, people who from different social status than us, by eating together and remembering Jesus, we are remembering that Jesus welcomed all people and that his death was for all. And so the Lord's Supper intends to undermine the social stratification of society. Hey, thanks for listening to this recording on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by people just like you. So if you're one of those who supports this ministry with your uh, generous support, thanks a ton for that. If you have been impacted or blessed by this ministry in any way, would you prayerfully consider if you are able to support this ministry? There is a link down in the notes below, or you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the give button and it'll take you to a page where you can set up a a recurring monthly donation by just putting an amount, clicking the box that says make this monthly, or you can give a one-time gift as well. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. So thanks a ton for your support. Thank you.